Saudi Arabia, as we know, they really hold in many ways the key for the price of oil and gas at a global level because of where they are located and what is in there under their land. On who is so far, we've only covered American leaders, American politics. But this show is about power. And even though the United States is the most powerful country in the world, it's not all powerful. There are some things we need that other countries have lots of, and we're willing to give them a lot to get. It's time for Who Is to Study Abroad and cover the most powerful millennial in the world. Mohammed bin Salman is crown prince of Saudi Arabia. He's likely next in line to be the head of state. He's set to inherit over a trillion dollars. And he's already had a massive amount of influence, making major changes at home in Saudi Arabia and imposing his will all over the Middle East. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power through the stories of people who have it. This week, for our first international episode, we're digging into the crown prince and de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS. I wanted to hear it from somebody who knows Saudi Arabia firsthand. So I spoke with Hala al-Dusari, a scholar, activist, and writer from Saudi Arabia, who is currently a fellow at the MIT Center for International Studies. So let's start with the simple stuff. Who is Mohammed bin Salman? I see Mohammed bin Salman as an authoritarian, unchecked in any level, uh, brutal leader, and who is a leader who lives in a bubble. So Mohammed bin Salman is the 30-something crown prince of Saudi Arabia. He is the favorite son of the current king, King Salman. Thus, his name is Mohammed bin, Mohammed, son of Salman. And since 2015, when he was first made the deputy crown prince, he has had kind of a meteoric rise in Saudi politics. Stephen Cook, who is the Eni Enrico Matei Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council for Foreign Relations, studies power in the Middle East. He rose to power after his father became the king in 2015. His father assigned him with reforming the economy. This is a country that has a very high level of corruption, high level of monopoly of power, especially on economy. There is no transparency, no developed regulations to protect public spending or to to basically create any kinds of overseeing authorities. That is an important and difficult job. Saudi Arabia has long derived its power and its wealth from its natural resources. It has 20% of the world's oil reserves, and its economy is almost entirely dependent on the world's thirst for oil. I dug up this weird old documentary, Desert Venture. It's from 1948, and it explains Saudi Arabia's first steps towards global prominence. Perhaps this country, so unproductive on the surface, might contain minerals below the surface, including oil. But vast sums would be needed for search and development, and there was no quick way to a realization of this hope. The Saudis needed help. MBS's grandfather, King Ibn Saud, turned to American oil companies who were ready to plunder the Persian Gulf. American investment paid off. Enormous oil reserves were located, which would lead to Saudi wealth. 
This was the beginning of the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States. The documentary continues on the importance of this huge oil discovery. The way is open for other American companies to come into the Middle East and join in developing its great resources for the benefit of its people and of the world. That documentary was made by the Standard Oil Company, which in a famous antitrust case was split into entities that eventually became Exxon and Mobil. Standard and the Saudis created Aramco, the Arabian American Oil Company. A guiding principle in Aramco's venture has been the belief that foreign capital cannot justify its presence in any land unless it operates in the interest of that land. Fully vindicating that principle has been the mutual trust and goodwill that have grown up between the American oilmen and the Saudi Arab government. Thus, American venture capital is developing new standards of life in an ancient realm, where a people with a glorious past are now building a glowing future with their partners from the other side of the world. By 1950, Aramco is splitting its profits with the Saudis, and by 1980, it's wholly owned by the Saudi royal family. By 1981, the kingdom was pulling in $118 billion from its oil, directly enriching the family. Here's Hala Aldosari. It's the wealthiest family in the world. The ruling family is the wealthiest family in the world. Basically, having uncontrolled access to the oil revenues for decades since the 50s. Uh, they're, they're super wealthy. I don't think anybody knows. I don't think anybody knows how much wealth they have, but they have significant, significant, significant wealth. The Saudi royals get this immense wealth, and the United States gets what some say it prizes most oil. The United States' other favorite thing, the defense industry, also gets a little nod. Over the years and through presidencies, the Saudis have spent billions of dollars on American arms. Here's President Trump bragging about a 2017 arms deal. He's pointing out each item on a giant poster, with MBS sitting next to him, laughing. In terms of dollars, $3 billion, $533 million, $525 million. That's peanuts for you. You're interested. $880 million, $645 million, $6 billion. Here's Stephen Cook. During the Cold War, the United States had made a commitment to the prosperity and stability of its allies around the world as part of its Cold War strategy. And that meant ensuring that the free flow of energy resources came out of the Persian Gulf, but in particular Saudi Arabia, because it was the big producer. Since the end of the Cold War, the United States has maintained this position of ensuring the free flow of energy resources out of the region because a healthy global capitalist economic order is good for America and good for Americans. The question is now, as we enter perhaps a new era of energy independence and renewable energy, is Saudi Arabia, is that commitment to Saudi Arabia as important as it once was? No one has yet answered that question. 
MBS is responsible for reforming the economy, moving Saudi Arabia away from relying on oil profits and into the future. It's called Vision 2030, a plan to diversify the economy and increase profitability beyond oil by 2030. In 2020, MBS, at just 34 years old, is basically the steward of an entire nation, a military, an economy interconnected with the whole world. But that world is changing. The Saudis would like to think that they are more than just a gas station for the world and that they are a source of stability in the region and their role and the king's role as the custodian of the two holy mosques in Mecca and Medina affords them a kind of global influence that they wouldn't otherwise have and that they are now a bulwark against Islamist extremism and against Iranian expansion. Now, that's the way they think of things. Now, let's keep in mind that the Saudis for many years propagated a virulent form of Islamism that at times led to extremism, and that 15 of 19 hijackers on September 11, 2001 were Saudi citizens. That's something that the Saudis bristle at when you bring it up, but it's part of their history. The kingdom is deeply religious. And of course, Islam itself is not to blame for global extremism. But the Saudi royalty espouses a newish and specific sect that they are the biggest booster of, Wahhabism. The European Parliament found the Saudi crown has invested more than $10 billion to promote its Wahhabi agenda through charitable foundations. That money often ends up in the hands of, quote, rebel and terrorist organizations throughout the region. The U.S. State Department says, quote, donors in Saudi Arabia constitute the most significant source of funding to Sunni terrorist groups worldwide. Oil wealth directly led to the success of the once richest non-royal family in Saudi Arabia, the Bin Ladens. Mohammed bin Awad bin Laden was a major Saudi construction magnate, and he had a son, Osama, who, you know, really gummed things up. Here's Stephen Cook again. An argument can be made, I'm not necessarily sure that I agree with it, but that the Saudis have been as equally disruptive of stability in the Middle East as the Iranians. I think that may be a bit overstated, but people make that argument. Either way, it speaks to the fact that the Saudis are an influential and important country in global politics. MBS has sought to steer Saudi Arabia away from fundamentalist leanings. But that doesn't mean he's progressive. The fact that he's going to more of a secular Saudi Arabia rather than Islamic Saudi Arabia, doesn't mean that he's moderate reformer. Mohammed bin Salman has reined in the notorious Saudi religious police and has made an effort to rein in Saudi Arabia's religious establishment. No one should detract from that in particular. He did have, I think, a very important insight that if he provided Saudis with the things that they like, like going to the movies. I mean, Saudi Arabia is not a closed society. There's 500,000 Saudis who've been educated in the United States. They know what's going on around the world. So if you give Saudis things that they want to do, like go to the movies, go to a concert, not live under the fear of the religious police, you're going to create a reservoir of public support for him so that when he does the hard things, like taking on those vested interests within the royal family, he will have the insurance policy of having a reservoir of public support. It seems to me that was a very shrewd thing that he has done, and it has worked for all of the international opprobrium heaped on Mohammed bin Salman and Saudi Arabia since the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. 
by all measures, he seems to remain quite popular with large segments of the Saudi population. Not all. Certainly religious conservatives not happy about him. Certainly people who have benefited from the system that he's trying to change are not happy with him. But, hey, if you want to go to the movies, if you want to see Avengers Endgame, you're pretty psyched about that. Some of the reforms have been very successful, uh, opening up the spaces for entertainment and recreation, easing the restriction on gender mixing, allowing more women in the workforce, allowing women to drive and to travel. What happened is that they've had this kind of huge celebration in Saudi Arabia and in the U.S. with the decision, regardless of the problems during the implementation of the decision, regardless of the fact that so many people who have called for women to drive were imprisoned. So you get to see all those kinds of pitfalls and errors in implementing the policy in ways that it shows that the government is really keen to present its best face outward while locking on the voices of those people who might be critical, who might bring about those issues of serious concerns. So they want only the voices of the narrative of the government to dominate the discussion rather than the people voices. So the waves of arrest that we've witnessed uh, so, and of course, the torture that happened, those women were electrocuted, were beat in prison, uh, were waterboarded, were sexually abused. These are things that have not been, you know, have not been witnessed before in Saudi Arabia in such a scale. While Saudi Arabia has been a monarchy all along, MBS changed things. In 2017, MBS systematically rounded up those who could challenge him. Mohammed bin Salman rounded up people who were either his rivals or perceived to be rivals or could be rivals, people who had become quite wealthy, members of the royal family, business elite, rounded them up and put them in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel and told them that they were being brought there and interrogated on corruption charges and they had to pay to get out. That was seen in the West as this kind of egregious violation of you know a variety of norms, a shakedown, a consolidation of power. It was cheered by a younger generation in Saudi Arabia. I was there at the time. And so it's hard really to describe exactly what this regime's like. It's in motion. It could be more open, but it could end up being a more closed society, depending on how uh, Mohammed bin Salman's reforms go. There is some good, there's some bad, and there's some very bad. And I think the focus has really been on the very bad. As the United States figures out new ways of procuring energy, Saudi Arabia will need to find new ways to get money. And the economy is Mohammed bin Salman's responsibility. The Saudis want to buy their way into the future. They want to, it's not just buying technology though, it's, it's buying relationships so that technology companies will invest in Saudi Arabia and invest in Saudi's human capital. I think Saudi leaders, including Mohammed bin Salman, recognize that there needs to be a post-oil economy, and they've made bets on technology, I think like the rest of the world has. And so they believe that investments with American technology firms will help bring those firms to Saudi Arabia that will help nurture and develop a human capital in ways that there can be a kind of dynamic entrepreneurialism where Saudi Arabia and other parts of the region can become also centers of technology. Whether that's successful or not, who knows, but that's the theory behind their relationship, budding relationship as, uh, with tech companies as well as 
the Saudis have been very active in buying from various tech companies the tools to which they can keep tabs on their population. They've bought surveillance technology from Israeli technology companies. They've been involved with American companies to the extent to which they've used that technology for surveillance is unclear, but it's pretty well documented that Israeli technology companies, which are really an extension of Silicon Valley in a lot of ways, have been deeply involved in this kind of activity. The Saudi Public Investment Fund is a chunk of Saudi money that's mostly been invested around the country since the 70s. But now they're focusing on outside investments, hoping to make $2 trillion by 2030. They put a bunch of that money in SoftBank's Vision Fund, which in turn has invested in companies like Uber, DoorDash, WeWork, Slack, and a host of other Silicon Valley notables, further broadening the number of influential Westerners who have a reason to ignore the human rights abuses of the nation. Will they? You do not kill someone and dismember somebody within an hour without a lot of preparation. That is Agnès Calamar, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Killings, speaking of the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. He was killed about a year ago on 2nd of October 2018 in the Saudi consulate of Istanbul, Turkey. So what do we know about the killing of Mr. Khashoggi? I looked at the evidence that I had collected. I looked very carefully and analyzed the international legal framework that distinguish between what is a rogue operation, what is a state operation. And on that basis, evidence plus legal framework, the only conclusion was that the killing of Jamal Khashoggi was a state killing. It's a killing for the which the state of Saudi Arabia is responsible. Therefore, it is a killing for which the state of Saudi Arabia should be held accountable. Who was Mr. Khashoggi and why did they want him dead? So Jamal Khashoggi is a very interesting journalist and character, complex character in many ways. He was very popular with the Saudi population. He was not by absolutely, there was no history of him being a radical thinker or calling for reform of the Saudi regime or of the court system. Over the years, it seems that he grew increasingly disconcerted and discontent with the way the country was evolving. And it became even worse under the new leadership of Mohammed bin Salman. Khashoggi left Saudi Arabia because of Mohammed bin Salman's authoritarian turn. And all evidence indicates that MBS was involved in Khashoggi's killing. We know that the operation itself was extensive. It involved 15 people. It involved renting of two private jets. It demanded uh, many hotel reservations that was done, were done out of Riyadh. The jet, private jet, flew through with diplomatic clearance. Some of the people who traveled had diplomatic passport. We also know 
that the body of Mr. Khashoggi has disappeared. Mm -hmm. And we know that after his killing, Saudi Arabia sent a team of 17 people in addition. So we had the 15 that came for the special operation and left. And a few days later, a 17-person team arrived. They were in Turkey for almost two weeks, mostly within the consulate. And there is strong evidence to believe that during that time, they probably investigated the crime, but they also cleaned the crime scene. What do all those facts indicate? It indicates that this A, of course, as I mentioned, was not a rogue operation, and B, that the highest level of the governments were implicated. Does that mean that Mr. the Crown Prince ordered the crime? I don't know. What I do know is that there are different scenarios mm -hmm. regarding the responsibility of the Crown Prince, and one of them applies to the case. Maybe he ordered the crime as the CIA supposedly argued. Maybe he incited the crime. Maybe he created the conditions mm -hmm. that made the crime possible. So I do not know which one of those hypotheses apply to him. What I do know is that one of them applies to him, if not more than one. Kelamar, in her investigation, implicated the highest levels of the Saudi regime in this brutal murder. The CIA went further, concluding that MBS ordered the killing. So what happened next? Unfortunately, after that, there was very little action. The vast majority of governments are not prepared to shake the status quo. When President Trump was asked about the killing of Khashoggi, he said he thought MBS was innocent because MBS said he was innocent. We have a very strong ally in Saudi Arabia. We have an ally that said they did not commit at the top level, the crown prince, the king. They did not commit this atrocity. And it's an atrocity. It's a terrible thing. I dislike it more than you do. But the fact is, uh, they've been a very strong ally. They create tremendous wealth. They create really tremendous number of jobs in their purchases. And very importantly, they keep the oil price down. Well, why it happened is different from how shocking it was. Why it happened was that Mohammed bin Salman and the people around him were pissed off at the things that Jamal Khashoggi was saying, and they were sending a message to, to others. Was it shocking? Yes, of course it was shocking. I think it's not the first or the last time that a journalist in the Middle East has been killed or disappeared, but to go about it in this way was a shock that they would be so brazen. And also it was the kind of thing that the Saudis had not really done in the past. If, you know, the Russians did this, you'd say, oh, well, that's what the Russians do. If the Iranians done it, yeah, well, that's what the Iranians do. The Turks are out arresting journalists left and right. The Israelis eliminate Iranian nuclear scientists and things like that. But this was something that's kind of alien. No matter how kind of repressive Saudi Arabia might have been internally, they'd never really done something like this. But since the emergence of Mohammed bin Salman, they have been trying to intimidate their critics abroad. And uh, I think Khashoggi was one of those people, unfortunately, was being made an example of. I think they thought they could get away with it. I think they themselves were surprised at the international reaction to the murder of Khashoggi. 
I think they were kind of full of themselves and said, oh, yeah, we're a big boy now, too. We can play in this field. And they were mistaken. But they weren't really held accountable in any meaningful way, at least not yet. And the Khashoggi murder is one in a string of incidents that demonstrate Saudi Arabia taking matters into its own hands. I think since 2015, you see the Saudis taking matters into their own hands, whether it's in Yemen or other arenas in the Middle East, and that has had an effect on the region. As far as forging and shaping the region, certainly the Saudis have been important, but they were relatively less active players. Always important, always influential, but not as active as they have been in the last four years or so. This may be their first dismemberment, but they've allegedly kidnapped someone before, a foreign prime minister. And Agnes Calamar thinks they're going to continue, for lack of a less infantilizing phrase, acting out. Probably even more extraordinary than the killing of Mr. Khashoggi in the history of international relation around the world was the abduction of the Lebanese prime minister. Mr. Hariri. He was abducted some two years before the killing of Jamal Khashoggi by the Saudi government. He's a Lebanese prime minister. He's also a Saudi citizen as well as a French citizen. He was abducted for several days, if not weeks. He was held by the Saudi intelligence and he was mistreated and ill-treated something that has been characterized by people close to the case as amounting to psychological torture mm-hmm. and physical ill-treatment. Not one reaction to that. Yeah. You, can you imagine any other country abducting the elected prime minister of another country yeah. and getting away with it? Saudi Arabia did. Kidnapping a foreign leader and forcing him to resign, that's just absolute madness and a piece of news that barely made it to the rest of the world. But despite all this, despite Khashoggi's murder, despite human rights abuses of Saudi citizens, despite potential involvement in global terror, the country's resources and immense wealth protects it. So everyone is prepared to turn a blind eye, Mm -hmm. to turn away from the reality because of the financial might of that country, the cash. It's not just the financial influence. It's the fact that Saudi Arabia has access to a lot of cash, that it is ready to disperse seemingly in a very uh, generous Mm -hmm. fashion. So on a political level, governments are very prepared to welcome back Saudi Arabia, either because they have arms deals or other business dealing with them, because they have geostrategic interest with them, because they are fighting Iran and believe Saudi Arabia is the only one they could do that with, for whatever reason, because of oil, because of gas, for whatever reason, uh, the governments of the world want to welcome Saudi Arabia back and to pretend that Saudi Arabia is a state like anyone else. It's not all about geopolitics. It's on a smaller scale, too. Saudi Arabia has been paying American Instagram influencers to visit the country and do SpawnCon. Seriously, 
And they hold a yearly event called the Future Investment Initiative, where global power players come to hear lectures and do rich people stuff. It's held in the very same Ritz-Carlton where MBS held political opponents against their will during the 2017 purge. The 2018 summit immediately following the Khashoggi murder saw boycotts. But in 2019, people went back. Executives from investment banks like BlackRock and Goldman Sachs, the CEO of Citibank, and Will I Am from the Black Eyed Peas. It only took a year for those who boycotted to forget about the murder and all of the country's other human rights abuses and head back to the desert to hobnob with the Saudis. This is why it's so important that we, civil society, we, the media, we are elected representative with some belief in accountability and justice. It is so important that we keep hammering the need for justice, the need for speaking up, uh, and that we challenge political leaders, economic leaders, cultural leaders that are prepared to be silent. Uh, We have to keep challenging that silence and speak up. But no relationship is more glaring than Mohammed bin Salman's relationship with the Trump White House. Trump's son-in-law and special advisor, Jared Kushner, is reportedly so close to the guy that Kushner ignored the National Security Council's request to be looped into communication between the two, and Kushner continues to chat with MBS on WhatsApp. A source told The Intercept that MBS brags Kushner is in his pocket. Saudi Arabia in many ways is an anomaly. And it is remarkable that a country that has actually produced, given birth to all the perpetrators of 9-11, it is amazing that a country that has continued to flout Western values and most recently imprison women because they wanted to drive and then kill a journalist and abduct the elected prime minister of another country. It is unbelievable that this country still has a standing than it does in the world. It is, I will say, it is so extreme as a case. That's why I will describe it still as a bit of an anomaly, particularly in the context of the United States, where it seemingly appears to even be getting away with 9-11, even though there is plenty of evidence provided by various actors within the Congress pointing to some kind of complicity in the most uh, formidable and awful terrorist action in the um, American territory. If you are a young person looking at the standing of Saudi Arabia in spite of everything that it has done, that it has driven, that it has allowed for the last 20 years or so, I think it's legitimate for you to question what kind of international system do we live in, what kind of even national system do I live in that allows for such country to remain an ally uh, in spite of everything, to remain our good friend and so on. What kind of international system do we live in? East and West are united. 
in pioneering a new frontier of progress. Serving the interest of the Saudi Arabs, serving the interest of the United States, and demonstrating the vitality of the American system of free enterprise. A system which from this new frontier is pumping into the trade of the world oil. One of the materials that is making a truly great contribution to our modern civilization. Mohammed bin Salman's power is something granted to him not just by his bloodline, but by the world at large and their thirst for oil. But that power is evolving and possibly growing rapidly, both in Saudi Arabia and abroad, as more and more Saudi money flows into international business, adding to the list of powerful people who won't hold MBS and Saudi Arabia accountable. The power of Saudi Arabia over the Middle East and over America was created by America. And all we got out of it is a few decades of oil and upcoming centuries of climate catastrophe. What a deal. Next week, we talk about another incredibly powerful millennial, Mohammed bin Salman's good friend in the White House and one of the most important people in the Trump administration, Jared Kushner. A sincere thank you to our guests, Agnes Calamar, Director, Global Freedom of Expression, Columbia University, and United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Executions, Hala Aldousari, the Robert E. Wilhelm Fellow at the MIT Center for International Studies, and Stephen A. Cook, Eni Enrico Matei, Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow senior producer and writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Editing and mixing by Ernie Indradat. Additional research and writing from PJ Evans. Additional research from Elias Acevedo. Production support from Rob Baynard, Amanda Earle, and Margot Wall. Emily Feld and David Zwick are our producers in Los Angeles. Our executive producers are Sarah Frank, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to Matt McDonough, Devin Rodrino, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube.